0: Our pastor and his wife are enjoying a week of rest and relaxation in Florida with Scott and Patty Lee, and so we are hoping the best for them, that they will come back rejuvenated and ready to be with us again in person. So this morning we do have the blessing to have Jared Hall back with us. He spoke here two years ago before the world, you know, closed up everywhere, and so we're hoping for better results from his sermon this Sunday would like to uh, read a, a little bio for him so you get an understanding of who he is if you do not remember from two years ago. He serves as a representative for Iowa, Missouri, Northwestern, Central, and Southern Illinois. He is enjoying the increase in the cost of gas. Jared is a frequent guest host on the Ken and Deb show in the morning on WDLM. He completed his undergraduate and graduate studies at Moody Prior to coming on staff with Moody, he served as a family pastor in East Moline, Illinois, for more than nine years. He and his wife, Melissa, have been married this summer for 15 years, and they have three sons. So let us welcome Jared to our pulpit this morning. Thanks, brother. Appreciate it.
1: Well, good morning, everyone. The bar has been set appropriately low with the uh, reminder that I... Before the world got strange, uh, the Thursday before was when uh, President Trump introduced the Trump bump, if you remember that, so we could not shake hands. And then the following Sunday, when I preached, that was the first Sunday online. So, super low bar. <laughs> super. Uh, we do have three boys. Their names are Blaze, Hudson, and Steele. Uh, Blaze after Blaze Pascal, Hudson after Hudson Taylor and then steel because he was gonna to have to be made of steel to survive in the house. <laughs> so, uh, the Eliasens understand that reality with that many boys in the home. Uh, and then also I serve with Life of Messiah International. It's the nation's largest, uh, oldest mission organization reaching Jewish people with the gospel. And so for those of you interested in biblical prophecy, uh, just a sneak peek, we're planning on a prophecy conference here in the Quad Cities. Uh, in September with Dr. Michael Rydelnick from Open Line, And so that'll be a treat. So that's your, that's your spoiler alert there. So uh, keep listening to WDLM because that's where you'll find out more details. And then also for those of you who do regularly listen to WDLM, this week is our spring share. And so we ask that you not uh, tune out uh, as some people do during fundraisers. I know, it's okay. My wife's one of them too. She's like, Well, I'm just going to turn the station this week. And then she goes, Wait, K Love's playing their fundraiser too? Where do I go? It's a very indecisive moment for her. Well, let's pray and we'll get started with today's message. Father, we need you. Father, you are our all in all. And so we thank you, Lord, that you've given us your word and that, Lord, through your word, we know what you've accomplished. In history, Lord, we know what You desire for us today, and Lord, You've given us glimpses of what the future hold. And so, we ask that as we study Your Word, that it would do what it promises, that it equip us, that it encourage us, that it correct us, and that, Lord, as a result of this time in Your Word, that we be more like Your Son Jesus, that we be transformed by the renewing of our mind in the way that we think, in the way that we speak, and the way that we live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I'd like to begin today's message by sharing a story of a young man who was hopelessly in love and who was seeking to gain the blessing of his potentially future father-in-law. However, for this young man, his future father-in-law was kind of an old-school farmer. And so when he went to approach this uh, older gentleman about the possibility of marrying his daughter the farmer looked at him and said Absolutely, you can marry my daughter on one condition. Well, what's that condition? Well, I've got a couple bulls And so I'm gonna put you in the pin with one of them and you got to grab that bull by its tail If you're man enough to do that you're man enough to marry my daughter Now this young man was hopelessly in love so he was willing to to do anything Anything to marry this young woman. So he got into the pin. And before that gate opened up and before he saw that bull, his only familiarity with bulls was really from Bugs Bunny cartoons. And that seemed like this whole thing was very doable. So when that gate opened up and he saw a real live bull with the veins and the eyes and the steam and the so forth, he got a little nervous. And that bull came charging across that pin, and he decided, you know what? I have three chances. I'm going to run and jump on that fence and hold on for dear life. So that bull ran past, and he missed his opportunity. farmer yelled out, you got two more chances, son. Okay, great. Now, in his mind, what's the chances that a bull could be as scary as that first bull? Well, that pin opens up, and he looks at that second bull, and that second bull is the first bull's older brother. (laughs) That bull had muscles upon muscles. This was scary stuff. So that bull comes charging across there. That man drops into the fetal position, and he just prays, Lord, save me, weeping almost. And then finally, after that bull charges through, he hops back up, and he thinks to himself, all right, this is it. This is my last chance. I've got to do it. What's the chances that this bull is any scarier than the first two? Well, that gate opens up, and he sees the saddest-looking bull he's ever seen in his life. Keep in mind, he's only seen two so far, so the bar is already pretty low. So he looks at that bull and that bull looks like it's like the grandfather of the two previous bulls. That bull is the geriatric bull. That bull is wrinkly, it's saggy, and it comes charging at a slow trot. And the man's like, this is my moment. This is my opportunity. He gives a little juke move to the old bull, jumps out of the way, goes to reach and grab for that tail. Well, as it turns out, that bull was so old that it had already lost its tail. Swing and a miss. That young man missed his opportunity. Now, I highly doubt that's a true story. But what it does illustrate is that in life, you and I miss out on opportunities. Anybody miss out on an opportunity before? Can anybody really clearly right now in the front of their mind recall a moment where they go, you know what? I did miss that. Perhaps it was a chance to share the gospel with somebody. You're sitting on that airplane. That person next to you strikes up a conversation. And you go, you know what? I have a chance right now to talk about Jesus with them. And then the fear kicks in. That nervousness kicks in. The thought of being judged kicks in. And you bail out. Or what about that dream of starting that business that you never decided to go through with because you talked yourself out of it so many times? Or what about that person that you thought, you know what, if I just walked across the room and talked to them right now, maybe my entire life would be different. All of us have missed opportunities. And I want you to think about this. The Lord, in his word, in Ephesians 2, says that he's prepared good works in advance for us to do. That the Lord has specific things he desires for you and us. And then throughout his word, he's described very clearly that you and I are to be people who are to make disciples. And that means sharing the gospel with people. That means teaching the scriptures. That means knowing the scriptures well enough to teach them. And yet it's so easy to go through our life just getting by and reasoning ourselves out of doing what the Lord has called us to do. And so I want to look at three things this morning that I think cause us to miss God-sized opportunities, and then identify one thing that makes a huge difference in realizing God-sized opportunities. So, if you have a copy of the scriptures, open up with me to Second Samuel chapter six. Second Samuel chapter six. As you're turning there, I'm gonna give you a little bit of background of what's happening. The narrative today that we're looking at involves King David. Moving the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Now, the Ark of the Covenant has been relatively displaced from the worship of the Israelites for over 20 years now. So back in 1 Samuel 6, the Israelites had lost the Ark of the Covenant to the Philistines in battle. And then, when the Philistines had a terrible time with it, they sent it back to Israel. Israel was so terrified by it that they just kind of left it alone. So what is the Ark of the Covenant? Quick reminder, it's a box made of wood overladen with gold inside of it. Three objects. You got the second copy of the Ten Commandments because Moses broke the first one. Parents, you can relate to that. You got Aaron's rod that had budded and then you have manna. And the goal of the Ark of the Covenant, according to God's word, is to be the footstool or the throne of the Lord, that it's to rest in the Holy of Holies within the tabernacle and then the temple, and that this is the place that only one person, the high priest, can enter into that room once a year, making a sacrifice for the sins of himself and for the entire nation of Israel, and come into counter with the Ark of the Covenant. Other than that, the Lord's used it for leading the Israelites through the wilderness, crossing through the Jordan River, around the city of Jericho. But other than that, it's to be in this one place. So it's very special to be the Lord's footstool or throne. And the Israelites have just left it alone because it kind of freaked them out when a bunch of people died when they looked inside of it. That's the inspiration for Indiana Jones. Did you know that? I'm not sure if it was the same kind of scene, you know, but that's where it comes from. So let's see what happens when David goes to move it. Verse 1. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it up out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the Ark of God, and Ahio went before the Ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the Ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez-Uzzah, the breaking out against Uzzah to this day. Let's pause real quick and let's ask a couple questions of the text. First question. Why does David have 30,000 soldiers to move The Ark of the Covenant. Seems a little excessive, right? Right? I mean, 30,000 to move this box. Well, you see, in the battle where the Israelites had initially lost the Ark of the Covenant to the Philistines, do you know how many soldiers the Philistines killed that day? 30,000. And so this is David's statement that, listen, there was a time where we lost to our enemies this many men, but look. We've got this many men again, and we're going to move in victory, move in this Ark of the Covenant. It's a statement. It's a statement. But you know what's interesting? He didn't need 30,000 soldiers. According to the Word of God, according to the Torah, he needs priests, not soldiers. Interesting, right? Now, second, why is the cart being carried on a new cart? Because in the Torah, it's very clear that there's supposed to be poles overlaid in with gold running through the sides of the Ark of the Covenant, and the priest is supposed to carry the Ark by the poles, but instead, this is on a cart. Well, when the Philistines sent the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel, how did they send it? They sent it by cart. So think about that. David is moving the Ark of the Covenant not according to the Word of God, but the example of of the unbelieving Philistines. Now, this is one of those passages where people are like, hey, all Uzzah tried to do was catch the Ark of the Covenant. I mean, we've been there, right? Something's falling. What do we do? It's almost like a reaction, a natural reaction, to try to catch it. Can anyone blame Uzzah that he tried to catch the Ark of the Covenant? I mean, wouldn't we all go, "Uh uh-oh, It's kind of a big deal. It's kind of important. And yet it says that God's anger is kindled against Uzzah. And he strikes Uzzah down. Well, one, we know already that should never have been on the cart in the first place. We know that. Never should have been on a cart. Never should have been stumbling by oxen. If it would have been carried, this never would have happened. Next, in the word of God, In the book of Numbers, chapter 4, verse 15, it says this, They must not touch the holy things lest they die. They had been warned. It would have been better to obey God's word and allow it to fall than to follow the natural reaction of trying to catch it to keep it from falling. Now, what's my point in this? These first six verses are just littered with examples of David doing this thing that the corresponding passage in Chronicles says is a very good thing. It's a very good thing that he wants to take the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, but the way that they're doing it is not according to the Word of God. And that brings us to our first point today. What causes missed opportunities? Ignorance of the Word of God. Not obeying the Word of God. Think about this, guys. Have there ever been a time period in the history of the world where you and I have easier access to the Word of God? Never. Never. Never, ever. Side note. I was at Founders Week uh, last month, and I was sitting, like, right there, because Moody's kind of, like, is like, pretty Baptist, and so you don't sit in the front row. And so, so I, was, I was, like, right there, and Luther, Erwin Luther, standing right here, and he's preaching and, and he starts his message by saying, get out your Bibles. And he, and he holds up, you know, like a, a paper Bible. And he goes, this is a real Bible. Some of you actually have one, right? And then I had my phone, right? So now I feel, you know, I feel kind of sheepish. <laughs> scrolling. Then I had this idea. I had this moment where I thought, you know What? Printed Bibles are relatively newfangled technology when you think about it. They're only, it's only about 500 years old, you know? I mean, really, if we're talking about real Bibles, we should be pulling out scrolls, right? And I thought, what a great opportunity to pull out a scroll right now and be like, this is a real Bible, Luther, your newfangled technology. I didn't have a scroll on me, though, so... But think about it. We could listen to the Word of God 24-7 on an app for free. For free, 24-7. But our propensity is to use a Bible like decoration. Put it on a shelf. Have it on a coffee table. There's a story of a young seminary student who was paying his way through seminary by painting houses. And in this one particular house, while while he's painting it, he notices that a woman that, whose house he's painting for has this gigantic Bible on her coffee table. I mean, huge Bible on the coffee table. And he comments on it, because he's in seminary, and he's into things like that. And he goes, that is an amazing Bible. And she goes, it really is. It is one of a kind. We've had it in our family for over a 100 years. I love this Bible. But he's also a good seminary student, so he wants to point out that it really doesn't matter the specific Bible. It's, the important thing is, is the content of the Bible. And so he points that out to her. He goes, you know, but it, what really matters is what's inside of there, right? And she goes, oh, I couldn't agree with you more. There's birth records. There's marriage records. All of that family history is right inside of it. She misses it, right? She misses it. It's so easy in today's world to take the word of God and make it marginal. Like, hey, I would rather go and do a Bible study and listen to what someone else has to say about the Bible. Hey, I would rather just listen to a devotion that takes me through one verse of the Bible Instead of immersing ourselves in the totality of the Word of God. I mean, think about this. Even reading this passage and understanding that they're missing out on God's instructions requires an understanding of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. How many Bible studies are we doing on Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, right? Not a lot. Not too many. People go, I'm going to read through the Bible. They get to Exodus 20, and they're like, I'm out. What is all these rules? This doesn't matter. I'm under the new covenant. And yet, Paul says it's the word of God, that all scripture is breathed. So when we do not know the word of God, we're going to miss out on God's size opportunities. We're going to choose to do things that seem right to us that is contrary to the word of God. I know a woman who married a man who was an unbeliever. She was a believer, and she said, I prayed, and the Lord told me to marry him. Whoa, whoa. The scripture says not to be yoked with an unbeliever. So is your prayer life going to direct you in an area that is contradictory to the word of God? I don't think so. Seems like this should be pretty straightforward, but the church is filled with people who are missing out on God-sized opportunities because they're going with their gut or what somebody told them over and above the word of God. So what happens next? This guy dies, things start to fall apart. Verse 9. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the Ark of God. So David went and brought up the Ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the Ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Notice what happens here. After David sees Uzzah die, he's like, I'm out. (laughs) No way. This is scary stuff. Now I know why we left this thing alone for so long. Let's just keep leaving it alone. And he sent it to the house of Obed-Edom. He's out. What is that? That's fear. That's fear. And it's not fear of the Lord. It's not reverence of the Lord. It's the fear that causes self-preservation. Do you see that? David is not looking at this object and going like, I need to revere the Lord. He's looking at that object and goes, I could die today. No thanks. I'm out. This is how we miss God's opportunities. Is when fear drives our decision making when we feel the need to preserve ourselves and i just want you to know that the church never would have grown the church never would have went beyond the walls of jerusalem if fear dictated the apostles behavior and right now we live in an age And if it was true two years ago, it's super true today, where fear is preeminent, where self-preservation is number one. People avoid relationships with other people because they don't want to risk being hurt. And I want you to know something, that in the community of New Testament believers, that because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross on our behalf and by raising from the grave that we can live lives that can take great risks for the Lord regardless of what will happen to us because what's the worst thing that is going to happen? What's the worst thing? Die. That's it. And what happens? We spend eternity with the Lord. This is why Paul says is to live for Christ and to die is gain. Now, he doesn't want to be a martyr. He's not seeking out to be a martyr, but he's willing to obey the Lord because he's already weighed the options. Now, you and I, and I'm here, when I sit on a plane, I don't want to talk to somebody about Jesus because I don't want to be judged. freaks me out. I don't want to have that awkward moment where there's that tension And so I have to remember what Christ has accomplished on the cross because when Jesus goes to the cross and he bleeds for us, that's an awkward moment, right? Jesus was willing to die so that we may live and yet we're concerned about being perceived by someone else negatively. Do you see the issue with that, church? We miss God-sized opportunities when self-preservation drives our decision making now finally last thing to get to jerusalem we get introduced to a new character verse 16 as the ark of the lord came into the city of david michael or michael the daughter of saul looked out of the window and saw king david leaping and dancing before the lord and she despised him in her heart and they brought in the ark of the lord and set it in its place inside the tent that david had pitched for her And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord, and when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts, and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michal, It was before the Lord, who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child till the day of her death. What in the world is going on here? Michal is Saul's daughter. Saul being the first king of Israel. Same Saul who tried to kill David. What's very interesting is that the author here does something where initially when we're introduced to Michal, she's described as the daughter of Saul. And then Saul gives her to be married to David... And so then she's described as the wife of David. And then when Saul starts chasing David and trying to kill him, he ends up having her married off to somebody else. And then after David becomes king and takes care of Saul, then she comes back to be David's wife. Yet, what do we see here? She's no longer described as David's wife, but she's once again described as how? Saul's daughter. And then notice this. It says that she remains barren for the duration of her life. Now, we have to understand two things about barrenness. One, barrenness in life does not mean that you are cursed by the Lord. There are multitude of reasons why someone is barren. Narratively, in the literature, we have to understand that here, in the specific instance, the author is using it to describe that she is in the wrong in her view of things. That's how it's being used literarily. So again, that does not apply to everyone universally, but literarily here, that is what it means. That she's on the wrong side of things. And so what happens? In this moment, when the Ark of the Covenant comes into Jerusalem to be at the center of the Israelites' worship again, her personal bitterness towards David drives her viewpoint. So she's not able to celebrate what the Lord's doing because she's caught in bitterness. So I want to ask you this question today. Is anyone ensnared by bitterness Is there something that you're holding on to in your heart? Whether it's a relationship or an expectation that's been unmet that is causing you to live bitterly. Because bitterness is a joy stealer. Bitterness is going to constantly cause us to look inward instead of upward and outward. The best thing that Macau could have done is repented of this bitterness, but instead she holds on to it and she never lets it go the rest of her life. In my role at Moody, I get to meet with saints of all ages, but I get to spend a lot of time with people who are 70 to 95 years old. A lot of them. And there are saints that I meet with who are 95 years old and they've lived these incredible lives for the Lord and they are filled with joy even though life is difficult. And then I'll meet saints who are 20 years younger, and you'd think that they were the ones who were 95. And their life, although redeemed by the Lord, has been marked by bitterness that they've never let go of. And it has an aging effect on them. It has an effect on them where the world is hopeless, even though they've experienced the hope of the world. And so, saints, it's so important for you and I not to allow bitterness to take root in our heart because it will only produce faith, uh, fruit that is counter to the gospel, that is counter to the faith in Jesus. Bitterness must be dealt with. We cannot give a hearing to bitterness. So, here are these three things that causes us to miss God's size opportunities one, ignorance of the Word of God, that we simply don't know what the Word of God says. Two, fear, this desire for self-preservation. And then three, bitterness. But what makes the difference? Go back to that second portion with me where King David is scared of the ark. Notice that it says that the ark was at the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And what does the Lord do? This is verse 11. The Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Scripture doesn't tell us how doesn't tell us how, just that he was blessed because of the presence of the ark. And so, someone, verse 12, and it was told King David, we don't know who the messenger is, told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom, and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So what does David do? Then David goes back, takes the ark, and finishes his job, and takes it up to Jerusalem. Somebody comes and tells David the truth. This is what's happening. And what does it do? It encourages David to finish the job. Now, we can talk about encouragement from a worldly sense of some fluffy idea of, like, rah, rah way to go. But there's a spiritual way to talk about encouragement where we speak truth in love with gentleness and hope and respect to the scriptures to one another that can change everything. Paul describes the Lord in Romans 16 as the God of encouragement. Have you ever thought of the Lord as the God of encouragement? When I mean, we think about him as father, we think about him as judge, we think about him as Lord, but have you thought about him as the God of encouragement? Have you thought about him in that way? And that you and I as his ambassadors, as his representatives, part of our role and responsibility is to encourage one another with the truth of the word of God. And so what would begin to happen in our relationships if you look around this room and you realize that it was a shared responsibility to encourage one another to take hold of God-sized opportunities? What if that became part of? of the driving behavior for you to look around and go, you know what? Today, I'm going to encourage somebody. Lord, show me. Not just a pat on the back, not just a, hey, good job, but I'm going to encourage them with the word of the Lord. Did you know that you are a child of God? Did you know that you were adopted? Did you know that the spirit of the Lord is indwelling you at this very moment? Encouragement, one another with the word, with the truth of scripture. What if that became your ministry? What if that became one of the clear ways that the Lord uses you in the life of others? Everyone here is familiar with C.S. Lewis? Yeah? I want to share a story that's not very well known about him. In the latter years of C.S. Lewis' life, he had correspondence with an anonymous woman here in the United States. He never met her, but we have some copies of the letters. It says that in his letters, Lewis urged the woman to deal with life in an emotionally honest way, acknowledging grief, fear, and anger openly, And he warns her about the dangers of allowing anger and fear to drive her away from God. His letters refer often to suffering and the difficulty of dealing with abrasive people. And he also writes regularly about prayer and its place in the spiritual life. These three themes continually surface. Honestly dealing with an emotional state, responding graciously to trials and trying people, and being diligent in your prayer life. You know what's most interesting about this? that he's writing this letter to this woman that he doesn't know, this stranger, is that by Lewis's own account, at this point in his life, his popularity as an author was at an all-time high, and the demand of his work was higher than it would ever be. That there was more writing that he could possibly do, that the demand was that high, then he'd have years left on this world to do it. On top of that, the arthritis in his hand caused such searing pain that to hold the pen and to form every letter was excruciatingly painful for him. Now think about that. A worldwide famous author with high demand, with excruciating pain to hold that pen, and what does he choose to do with that? he writes letters of encouragement to a stranger. Right? Letters of encouragement to a stranger. A person he never meet that he didn't owe anything to. And this is why. Lewis believed that taking time out to advise or encourage another Christian was a both a humbling of one's talents before the Lord and also as much of the work of the Holy Spirit as producing a book. A humbling of one's talents before the Lord and a work of the Holy Spirit, encouraging one another. My hope and my prayer is that believers in Jesus Christ as a body, as a church, that encouragement will be a hallmark of each and one of your lives so that we can take hold of God-sized opportunities as they come and not miss them due to missing out on the word and fear and bitterness. That those things will go away. But that encouragement will be the hallmark in Christ. Will you pray with me? Father, it's so clear in this world that people are discouraged. It's so clear that people are hurting and that we're looking for relief. That as anxiety and depression are off the charts, sometimes it feels, Lord, so hopeless And yet, Lord, we know that you've reached to our life, that you've redeemed us, that you've reached into our lives and you've shown us the truth that this world is not all that there is, that there's hope of eternity with you, and that, Lord, because you've done it in so many different lives just in this room, Lord, we know that you can do it in more lives. And Lord, we know how you've used other people so simply yet profound in our own lives to lead us to the truth. And so here we are, Lord, asking you that our hearts would be encouraged today. That we may be your instruments. That, Lord, that we would not be controlled by the results of sin and the way that we think of ourselves and the way that we look at others the way that we relate to you, but Lord, that we be full throttle, believers in Christ, ready to serve you, ready to love you by serving and loving others. And Lord, I pray for the saints this morning, a pleasant view, that this would be a body marked by encouragement. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.